0: and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. It's Monday, the 4th of December, and I'm Alexandro. Before we start, there are some changes coming to the bunker. Over the past few weeks, we ran a listener survey to see what you love about the podcast and what we could do better. One thing that emerged from the response is we've been giving you slightly too many episodes to keep up with. So from this week, we're going over to a five days a week schedule, Monday to Friday. So we don't swamp you. We'll keep start your week on Mondays, of course, plus four original editions for the rest of the working week, including favourites like Bunker USA. So you can keep more easily on top of the bunker or, if you prefer, catch up over the weekend. That's the new, more manageable, five-days-a-week bunker starting this week. Now, there is a lot to cover, so let's get cracking. With me this morning is the always immaculately informed Roz Taylor. Morning, Roz. Hello, Alex. Right. There is only one witness giving evidence to the COVID inquiry this week, but it's a good one. (laughs) Boris Johnson is pencilled in for a blockbuster two-day session on Wednesday and Thursday. Rose, to quash a streetcar named Desire, we've had this date from the beginning. What are the central questions that Johnson must answer?
1: Where to start, really, with this one? (laughs) I mean, I think we're all very familiar now with the nature of Boris Johnson's failings during the COVID pandemic. Indecision, even his closest advisor describing him or comparing him to a trolley. Timing of lockdowns. Partygate gate is the, perhaps the most egregious example, but there are also other things as well. Why did he reopen pubs months before schools, for example, in 2020? Why did mm. hunting get a free pass when other outdoor activities didn't? There is so much to look at that it's no wonder he's the only witness this week. And I don't really know where they will begin, but it will certainly be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, my personal view for what it's worth is that it's the second lockdown that's the stickiest wicked for him because a certain amount of novelty in you know, building the track as the train is running can be claimed for March 2020, but then making the exact same mistakes in autumn 2020 is a much harder one to get around. So what do you think will be his broad defence, or at least the, his, his narrative of events?
1: Well, we've heard the main lines of it already, of course, uh, because he's briefed a lot of it to the press. This was an unprecedented event that no one could have foreseen coming. Note that he is giving particular attention to the idea of a lab leak, which may or may not be true. We do not know that might have caused the pandemic rather than it emerging from nature and from people's abuse of nature. And that will play into the idea that he was facing something that he could not ever have anticipated. He will also talk about the huge pressures on a tiny team that they could not have imagined they would have to take. He will point, to to the vaccine rollout, which was marginally... Faster in this country Mm -hmm. than in the rest of the EU, but only very marginally. He will also say that no country got it right throughout the pandemic, which is absolutely true. And he will talk about the benefit of hindsight that we know in looking back what we should have done perhaps to try to stop particular waves of COVID. But at the time, it was all much more muddled. There's a story that he's planted in the mail today, which he hopes, I imagine, will get some play, that he asked the security services to draw up a commando-style raid on a Dutch vaccine plant.
0: Yes, I saw that. I mean...
1: (laughs) you have stolen Uh, uh... some jabs. So I think that gives you an idea of the nature of his defence.
0: It seems to me that one of the strands of what he will advance is this idea that, you know, he plays people against each other to see ideas, battle it out. And when he, you know, when he pretends not to understand something, it's to sort of elicit a response from people so that they have to explain it. So I think I think we'll see quite a lot of that, of him saying that, you know, his leadership style is one of, you know, exploring this thing one day and that thing the next. Yeah. Uh, and it's not indecision, but it's a strength. Y- you mentioned him trailing large parts of his evidence, how extraordinary is that? I mean, he's treating it like a political speech. I don't think I've ever seen a witness trail the evidence they're going to give to an inquiry.
1: Well, that's fundamentally because he's a journalist. He is now; he was before he became prime minister. Arguably, as you've just outlined, he behaved during the pandemic as though he were a journalist. You know, mm. weighing up different options. You know, trying to decide which the best one was. He has never let go of that, and so from a journalist's point of view, therefore, it makes eminent sense to to <laughs> trail your evidence to the papers because they are the only people who really matter. It's basically saying these committees, the Standards Committee beforehand, now the COVID inquiry, don't really matter. What matters is how I am perceived by the newspapers, which now, of Mm. course, give me large amounts of money. That's what will be in his mind.
0: And we have seen some of the friendly press increasingly hostile towards counsel for the inquiry and the chair of the inquiry, Lady Hallett. Do you think they are preparing for a sort of hatchet job on the inquiry if he if he comes off badly, just like they did with the Standards Committee?
1: Yes, with Harriet Harman, of course. Yes, yeah. I mean, he does have a record in discrediting uh, female-led inquiries already. Uh, yes, he probably is, though he will be cognizant of the fact that the inquiry is not reporting for quite a long time. And it will mm. be years before we get a response. By that time, he hopes that uh, it will—we you know, will have all moved on to the next crisis, and it will all be mm. in the past, and uh, no one will really care. And uh, it, he's just, you know, he's kicking kicking it forward. But yes, it, it helps to to um, cast a malevolent light on the integrity of the people conducting the inquiry. Obviously.
0: Mm. I don't know if you saw an extraordinary think piece using the term very loosely by Matthew Sayed in the Sunday Times in which he criticized lawyers and judges because apparently their career is sheltered from having to make any decisions and they only criticize other people for the decisions they make. I mean, yes. to criticise judges, to say that judges' careers are sheltered from having to make decisions when it is literally the one job they have to do. And, and for
1: a journalist to say that as well is remarkable. I, I know,
0: I know, I know. It's just such a hot take. Do you think Johnson will have a, a sort of secondary agenda to make soon next session which will be next week as uncomfortable as possible is sunak vulnerable in anything
1: oh yes well he is vulnerable clearly and because he was op- pro opening up what if i were Boris Johnson putting my machiavellian hat on the account i would put forward was that he was constantly pulled between the competing demands of Rishi Sunak who wanted to open up for the sake of the economy and matt hancock who was more cautious the health secretary mm. at the time mm. and you know he just you know it was push pull he just you know, it was so hard and between the caution and the laissez-faire it was understandable that he had a great deal of trouble making up his mind and he was badly advised uh, and so on and so forth
0: hmm. the inquiry i think has gone largely under reported because there's so much else going on do you think this is the fortnight when it has the potential to explode into a, a big, big front-page story again because Johnson is box office?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's a great popcorn moment watching Johnson testify in front of any inquiry. But I think that a lot of people do not want to be reminded of this period in their lives, not least because that they, they feel that the sacrifices they made during that period were, were mocked by the government mm-hmm. in the form of Partygate. And it's an unpleasant memory. They have often, I think almost everybody has made up their minds about Boris Johnson and what they think of him by this by this point. And it is very unlikely that anything he says this week will change minds. If you also look at some things that focus groups are saying about the COVID inquiry, they will tend to say that they understand that these were very tough decisions that were being made at the time. And there is a degree still of compassion towards the dilemmas that leaders had, if not Mm. to Boris Johnson himself. I think the abiding impression of this inquiry, is of rats in a sack, you know, they're all (laughs) blaming each other. And with the exception of Chris Whitty and and Valance, who have come out of it with, you know, uh, quite a degree of credibility... The politicians involved have really, and and their advisers, have really disgraced themselves.
0: Now, Keir Starmer appears to have scored an own goal this weekend, managing to tick off much of his own party and the Conservatives. In a piece for The Telegraph and an interview to Radio 4's Broadcasting House, he praised Thatcher's dynamism and sense of mission, Although he insists this didn't mean he agreed with the policies. Rose, what was Starmer trying to achieve here?
1: Well, essentially, Keir Starmer is rolling the pitch for an event he's doing today with the Resolution Foundation and the LSE, which is about Mm. growing Britain to 2030 and which will also put pressure on him to commit more firmly to the Green Prosperity Plan, which he's has come into has fallen into some doubt though it's been quite unclear in the last few weeks what Labour is doing about that what he is therefore trying to do is get across the idea that firstly he is in charge of his party he can set the direction and tone of the party whereas Rishi Sunak cannot and he has also stressed today that he will not turn on the public spending taps as they are described. And as he sees it, Corbyn made that mistake and he isn't going to fall into the same one. So it's about stressing to the public that while he has a plan, that plan is not going to cost them much more money.
0: I think what he was saying essentially was that there are prime ministers in recent history who have been transformational and he would quite like to be a transformational prime minister. It has been slightly unfairly reported as, you know, care hearts Maggie, but in a way that was very, very predictable, I think. And he has got a fair amount of flack. Again, very, very predictably. So I don't understand why is he pushing so hard with this? Is there a worry that Labour are being drowned out by the Tory soap opera going on elsewhere?
1: No, I I don't think it's so much that. I think it's trying to draw parallels with 1979. Now, a lot of the people listening to this podcast will not remember 1979. I barely do myself. But at the time, the country was in a bad state, There were strikes, winter of discontent, feeling of government incompetence. And what he wants to represent for those older readers, who are the ones who read The Telegraph, where he wrote the uh, article in question, is a change that is transformative, that invigorates Britain, that is about growth. That's what he's trying to stress, because mm. for all the problems that Thatcher had in her uh, the early part of her premiership, which are somewhat underreported these days, eventually, of course, there was a big boom, in, particularly in the city, and they put the recession behind them. So yeah. that's what he's trying to evoke in the minds of those older readers.
0: Mm, I guess so. Uh, Do you think he's he's now getting to the stage where he might cross the line of diminishing returns by by just articulating stuff that will not capture enough wavering voters to offset the Labour voters that he upsets and might end up just staying at home?
1: It is a dilemma to a certain extent. I mean, the I think the problem is Labour voters staying at home. Of course, they've got nowhere else to go, effectively. I doubt they're going to defect to the Lib Dems if they're really on the left of the party. I think, though, that, as I say, at the moment, his concern is to show that he can set the direction of the party. And frankly, what are they going to do? Um, there will be complaining from the sidelines. And, you know, the Daily Mirror was quite uh, tough on him today. Saying yep. that he shouldn't do this, but remember, to a lot of younger voters in particular, Thatcher is a dim memory, if a memory at all. And not even true. younger voters. It doesn't have the kind of visceral power Reaction, that it used yeah. to have. Now it does more in the north, of course, and in South Wales and in places that were devastated by the mine closures during the 1980s, but. Increasingly, you know, the, the traction that that Thatcher has is is growing, and and the specter, you could almost say, that she has among the uh, on the left is beginning to diminish. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial.
0: The defendant repeatedly made false statements. On New York business records.
1: This is not a trial. This is not a, an
0: act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct.
1: This is the story of his first week in court, told through the transcripts. Listen now to the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Now, between the cold weather, the huge waiting lists, and the coming holidays, we are also beginning to get the first almost seasonal NHS winter crisis warnings. Why do you think this has become such an annual event now?
1: Well, because it is an annual event. It's uh, every every year. I NHS mean, I, I remember in the dim and distant
0: past having occasional years where there wasn't an NHS winter crisis, and then sort of one in five where there was. And now it just seems to be every year.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's because of the diminishing number of beds. And so the NHS can't respond flexibly when respiratory diseases kick in, as they do during the winter. And of course, the social care crisis is key to this. It is as bad as ever. That means that hospitals can't discharge patients to... Uh, social care and they're stuck blocking beds. And remember that it's councils who are l- responsible largely for yeah, social yeah. care now. And we're seeing, you know, on a, every few days a council announces that if they're not completely bankrupt, they're going into something very much like it. This is a very underreported crisis because it's not very sexy in political terms. Local councils are very boring. But Is absolutely salient to the way that the NHS operates. If you underfund the institutions that deal with people who are coming out of hospital, then people can't come out of hospital.
0: They stay in hospital, yeah. Do you think the swift resolution of the consultant strikes by new Health Secretary Victoria Atkins shows that Stephen Barclay was always the problem, or at least a big part of it. There's basically a deal being put to members, but there does seem to be a suspicious amount of movement really from the day she took over.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think she has been certainly more conciliatory in tone. She's been talking up the importance of the people in the service. Whether that will actually translate to any changes, given the financial pressures the NHS is under, we shall see. It has already created problems with nurses who are now threatening to strike again in 2024 because they feel that the consultants are going to get a better deal than they did. And that hasn't gone down very well at all.
0: Yes, and the junior doctors, of course, is still outstanding. Similarly, we have the RMT. Mick Lynch is putting a deal to those members, but Aslev are starting more strikes. So do you think there's a risk that the last few holdouts, as it were, train drivers, junior doctors, will lose public support very rapidly, especially over the holidays?
1: I don't think so. We've grown used now to these periodic stoppages. And I think mm. people mm. tend to blame the government for not resolving them, particularly as they've seen that other stoppages have now been resolved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they will yeah. ask, well, why can't these be too? And it is worth pointing out as well that the government will inevitably blame doctors if the long waiting lists go on, which they will, and they will say that is due to ongoing strikes. So I, yeah, that the overall mood music between the government and the unions, I don't think has substantially changed.
0: A couple of today's papers splash on Sunak's warning to the BBC, threatening to block an increase to their funding. The fee has, of course, been frozen for two years. um, So it is due to be looked at. He says the BBC should be and I quote, realistic about what it can expect people to pay. Rose, is there any substance to this story? Is it just the the usual pre-election round of BBC bashing just wrapped under the Christmas tree? for right-wing backbenchers.
1: It's always helpful when you can blame someone else for a tax whose terms you yourself negotiated (laughs) with Boris Johnson a few years ago. Um, The uh, the deal back then was two years of freeze, remember, in the licence fee, so not going up at all, followed by an inflation-linked rise, which, of course, is high because inflation has been high. It's 9%. So this is effectively ignoring the reality, just as Hunt did with the public services in the autumn statement a couple of weeks ago, ignoring the reality that the BBC's costs will have risen, people's salaries inevitably had to go up. Yeah, uh, top stars, you know, top people already quitting the BBC and often over the money to go elsewhere. It knows it's struggling to hold on to talent in many cases. And this is going to make it more difficult to do that. Last week, of course, the BBC set out a programme of cuts already, including especially to Newsnight. But why would Sunak want to see them? not cut more. I mean, you know, why would he want to see a public service broadcaster putting the government uh, under scrutiny? It's it's just, it's an easy target and it's a Monday morning newspaper pre-election yeah. candidate, as you say.
0: Yeah, that's my that's my sense of it. There is something really quite performative about it now. We've seen it so many times come and go in the news cycle, that, that same story. There were also a couple of stories about the UK Rwanda deal around. Number 10 is apparently briefing that this week will be a very big week for immigration. Let's see what they mean by that. One story is that the UK will give Rwanda even more money now to revive the scheme and get it to sign a, a treaty, upgrade the memorandum of understanding into a treaty. The other story is apparently they will plan to station lawyers and civil servants in Rwanda to sort of oversee the process. I mean, all of it sounds just so complicated and expensive, it would surely be cheaper to just expedite the, the processing of claims here. Why won't Sunak let this go? Is it that he can't? Will his backbenchers not let him let it go, basically?
1: Well, no, he's, he's weak fundamentally because they already there are rumblings that if this doesn't go through and if they don't get their flights to Rwanda, they may challenge his position. Insane though that might seem to anybody on the outside who wonders who on earth could take over from Rishi Sunak who would improve the tourist standing in the polls. The things announced today, I mean, it may well be that uh, James cleverly flies to Rwanda As you say, there are plans to send British lawyers to Rwanda. Rwanda won't like that, and doesn't like that because it smacks of what they would term colonial courts. And it's a tacit admission that Rwanda can't be trusted. Really, to have to 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 say, well, we have going to have to station people in this country is to say that is to admit that this is a country that can't be trusted to keep its promises. So it it's digging a. Ever deeper hole.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's increasingly looking like a process that will cost a lot more money and be a lot more fuss for very few people when if you just diverted that same effort and funds to processing the backlog, it just seems that it would solve the situation much, much faster.
1: Well, the parallel is with Brexit itself. Um, Yeah. uh, A a flagship policy that becomes a, a dead weight that drags yes. the Tory party down and the you know spending down.
0: Let's look a little further afield, Ros. The news from the Israel-Hamas conflict is awful. Not only have hostilities resumed, but they seem to be escalating. The IDF is now pressing into the south of the Strip. Mossad has ordered its team back from the Qatar negotiations. What happened? Why is the situation gone now backwards?
1: Uh, Fundamentally, because Israel has resumed and intensified its bombardment. And as you say, it's pushing Palestinians into an ever smaller area of the Gaza Strip and killing more and more of them, both deliberately and inadvertently uh, through airstrikes. Hmm. There's a very interesting piece by Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian today, which points out that Israel has by no means achieved its aims it estimates it's killed about five thousand Hamas fighters, but there are thought to be about twenty-five or thirty thousand Hamas fighters out there. So it may not have even killed a fifth or a sixth of them. And of course, the war itself and the devastation being wreaked on Gaza is a recruiting sergeant for the of course. Hamas yeah. course. Well the question we you know, you've got to ask is When will Israel feel that it has done enough? Will it ever feel that it has done enough? When is this war going to end? When is it going to feel that it is able to stop bombing Gaza? Because if it doesn't, then Gaza is going to be, it's on the way to being completely destroyed.
0: I can't imagine that at the moment they're not creating more Hamas fighters every day than they are managing to kill. Are there signs that Israel's allies are losing patience and beginning to qualify their support? There were some very interesting noises coming from Kamala Harris and Anthony Blinken, people like that, over the weekend.
1: Yes, and it's the Israel—it's Israel's tone that really matters in this. Kamala Harris was at COP twenty-eight, and she said that too many innocent Palestinians had been killed in Gaza which is a pretty strong line. And then uh, Lloyd Austin, the uh, Defence Secretary, said that the Israeli government risks strategic defeat in Gaza if it carries on killing civilians at the rate it's doing.
0: Doubtless related to this, the new Foreign Secretary and former Prime Minister David Cameron is not hanging around. He's making his first Washington visit on Wednesday for a series of bilaterals with his opposite number, Anthony Blinken, as well as meetings with key Congress members, both Democrat and Republican. Rose, what do we think are Cameron's sort of top objectives with this visit?
1: Cameron's top objective is to shore up support for Ukraine in America, and especially among Republicans. Now, we know that Donald Trump thinks that he can end the war in Ukraine in a day, and as far as we know, intends to pull US military support, which would basically make it almost impossible for Ukraine to continue fighting effectively. But there are signs now that the Republican Party may be moving a little bit towards Nikki Halley, the Republican uh, potential presidential candidate. She's been making a bit of a mark. She's a long way behind Trump now, still in the polls, but she has momentum and she will be much more open, perhaps, to continuing U.S. support for Ukraine. So it's a tough act for uh, Cameron. I don't know how much influence he will actually have, but he will be trying to persuade perhaps a more reasonable wing of the Republican Party, that it is in their interests to ensure that Putin doesn't win this war.
0: Mm. Finally, uh, COP28 is continuing this week after after its president suggested over the weekend that phasing out fossil fuels apparently wouldn't make a difference to temperature, um, which seems a rather striking assertion until one realizes that the president of COP28 uh, uh, this year is Sultan al Jaber who is also the chief executive of the United Arab Emirates State Oil Company. Roz? the atmosphere in this year's COP has been very different, I think. I mean, agreements seem to be struck more easily. The COP actually opened with a big agreement, which I I don't remember from a past one, but only because ambition has been scaled back. What's your general impression of it so far?
1: Well, holding the COP in the UAE does seem to have been an interesting choice in that it seems to have concentrated delegates' minds about how much is possible. I think, as well, of course, the fact that the 1.5, you remember the 1.5 to stay alive slogan, 1.5 has almost been breached already. I think global uh, temperatures are up to around 1.4 now. So it feels to many people, I think, that... Mitigation and technologies like carbon capture, for example, are perhaps the only way, a realistic way forward. The war in Ukraine, to a lesser extent, the war in Gaza has concentrated people's minds, I think, about how much can be achieved at an international level. There is not the optimism that existed around the time of the paris mm. agreement there is a feeling that perhaps world events are slipping out of control and that there's very little that can be done in the face of these kinds of these kinds of pressures and there's a realization as well that emissions are up in russia china india which is where it really matters and that while the us is investing heavily in in net zero other countries and China is also investing heavily in in net zero, but unfortunately, it's still burning huge amounts of coal. And progress has is is extremely slow. So mm. yeah, I, I think there's a kind of fatalism now that has crept into the whole debate and a feeling that yes, we do need. We do continue to need oil, we will continue to need oil, and we have to be pragmatic about that. And that, of course, is very much Sunak's view when he decided to open up Rosebank in the North Sea and continue with North Sea oil exploration. It's a very different mood, as you say.
0: Yes, and a very different position, I think, for Britain, uh, who was seen to be leading this a couple of years ago. I mean, Sunak reportedly spent more hours on his private jet flying there and back than he spent at the summit. And he's been rather overshadowed by King Charles, I think. What do you think that says about the British perspective on these things?
1: Well, it shows that we're not really taking it seriously at all. I mean, the fact that the decision of Prince Charles to wear a tie with Greek flags on it, which you know alludes to potentially we don't know exactly what he was doing but alludes to a spat that has nothing to do with climate change at all the whole parthenon marbles issue is a sign that we're just not we're not really focused on this and we're not taking yes. it seriously and we don't believe that it can change anything
0: and yet charles is quite respected in those circles i think he's seen as a much more authoritative figure than than most elected yeah, and it's unfortunate because he has been ways. he has been pursuing these things for decades now. You know, before very much before they were fashionable. I think.
1: Yeah, and it's unfortunate yeah. that he's he's let you know. I don't know it, what whether this was a gaffe or whether it was deliberate, but uh, ultimately it did overshadow his speech, which was a rather powerful one, and that was a shame.
0: Yes, you won't be surprised to know that as a Greek, I'm fully for it. And that's it from Start Your Week today. If you enjoyed it, you can support us for as little as £3 a month on the funding platform, Patreon. You'll have our gratitude and lots of benefits. Thank you, Ros. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening to Start Your Week. The Bunker will be back with you tomorrow.
1: Start Your Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Alex Andreu with Ross Taylor. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.